This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Senior Fellows Randy Pond and Lisa Sonsini, Class Matchers Darla Anderson, Class 24, Greg Avis, Class 11, Chuck Getchke, Class 10, Dottie Hayes, Class 19, and Steve Smith, Class 14. And a special thanks to ALF Classes 14, 15, and 24 for their tremendous support of American Leadership Forum over this past year. Why are Silicon Valley community-based organizations struggling to meet demand in one of the wealthiest and most sophisticated regions in the world? Why aren't more Silicon Valley philanthropists directing their dollars toward local organizations and issues, in addition to national or global causes? ALF Senior Fellows Alexa Cortez-Colwell and Heather McLeod Grant, co-founders of Open Impact, set out to answer these questions in their recently released report, The Giving Code, Silicon Valley Nonprofits and Philanthropy. Today, Heather shares a bit about their findings and what steps can be taken to bridge the giving gap. Let's listen. So Heather, thanks for being here today. Great to have you here. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the giving code and what led you to do that research. I mean, did you instinctively know that, oh, we have a disconnect here or what what signs led you uh, and Alexa to to really dive into this work? Well, Alexa had done a very short piece of research about three years ago and published a, a short blog post on the Stanford Social Innovation Review website. And that led to quite a bit of interest. And um, and then she would get follow-on calls about that. And it was really just a very, a very short look at Silicon Valley philanthropy. And she went back to Packard and said, you know, we don't have really good deep data on this. And by the way, the data is really hard to find. I think we really need to dig in and see what's actually happening here. Uh, and in addition to that, both Alexa and I have worked in nonprofits and philanthropy for most of our careers for the last 20, 25 years. And even though we've had some national clients, we also do a lot of work locally. And so anecdotally, we were seeing this disconnect where these new tech donors were coming out and wanting metrics and business plans and wanting everything to um, look and feel like a business. And the nonprofits were really struggling with, how do we talk to them? How do we reach them? We don't know these people. And so we were perceiving this anecdotally and what we wanted to do was go get the data behind it. You know, and I think that over the last couple of years, maybe it's the awareness in in Silicon Valley about the homelessness problem that has been, uh, you know, there's been a spotlight shed on that in the media a bit more. You know, it feels, maybe it's my perspective, right, where I'm coming from, but it feels like people are a bit more aware of Hey, we have we have a problem here. This isn't. Um, it is the land of wealth, but there's also you know we have a poverty issue. Um, but I would argue too that because we aren't all going to the same media sources and we're flooded right with information and Facebook, we can filter and see only what we want. We don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole story, right? Yeah, yeah I, I actually think it's interesting because I don't think there's just one Silicon Valley. I think there's many Silicon Valleys, and I right. think that the perception from San Jose might be slightly different because it's a more urban area. And so like San Francisco, you are getting reporting on homelessness and so on. I live mid-peninsula right between the two and it's much more suburban. And I would argue that a lot of people living in many of the suburban areas of Silicon Valley are actually quite disconnected from the problem. And they are living in a bubble. They're living in a bubble of affluence, of tech companies, of going to work and living in affluent suburbs. And they're not seeing the poverty as much as you do. I come down here because of ALF, come down to San Jose, I'm up in the city for meetings, you see it, it's more visible. Um, But if you go to Palo Alto and Mountain View and um, some of these other suburban areas, and particularly the bedroom communities, you really don't see it as much. And then I think that's augmented by the filter bubble and the, the fact that we are 
getting information that reinforces and affirms what we want to hear and see and believe right. and doesn't actually share the whole picture. So I think there's two things going on. There's this, there's this um, filter bubble issue with the media, and I also think that um, there are large parts of Silicon Valley that are actually somewhat disconnected from problems. In fact, an interesting fact we uncovered in doing the research, there's 60 different towns and cities and unincorporated areas just in San Mateo and Santa Clara County. Wow. So you have a high level of fragmentation right. in this region. One in five residents in Santa Clara County is living in poverty. And that's the type of statistic that, you know, the folks living in, in the more affluent areas probably don't know, probably not aware. 75% of renters living in poverty are paying more than half of their net family resources and rent. Um, what are some of those other statistics that you found in your in your research that really shocked you? Yeah, so again, we really started out wanting to look at what's happening with philanthropy and with nonprofits, but in doing that, it immediately takes you to what's happening with the economy and economic growth on the one hand for the haves and economic dislocation and displacement for the have-nots. And so as we started to dig into data provided by some amazing groups like, um, you know, the Silicon Valley, um, index and some other sources that we turned to, we discovered that in fact one in three residents in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, which was the focus of our research, uh, depends on public or private assistance to get by. So one in three people in these regions is, that's 800,000 people by the way, is struggling just to get by. And then you add into that the escalating rents and the cost of housing. Only 27% of residents in these counties can afford to buy a first home, and that's compared to something like 70% nationally. So we have these real extremes happening here, both, again, with the rising cost of living, growth and wealth and affluence, but also the fact that it's displacing many formerly middle-class counties. In fact, middle-class in these two counties has declined by an average of about 10 to 11 percent over the last two decades so so it's pretty startling it's what's playing out nationally but i think it's um on hyperspeed here and we're seeing even greater um extremes you mentioned nationally i'm curious do you suspect that this disconnect is unusual compared to other big cities and what if so what makes us different <laughs> yeah it's a really interesting question we didn't do a huge national um scan I, so I'm only speaking anecdotally. We haven't actually looked at the data. I mean, it would be really interesting for an academic institution to take this data and actually try and replicate it in other major metropolitan areas to see what does this picture look like in Chicago or in New York or in Dallas or Atlanta. Um, so we did not look at that data, but anecdotally, I can say that I think what we're seeing here is this whole conversation playing out nationally about income inequality and the fact that the middle class is being hollowed out and that real wages um, you know, the manufacturing jobs have left. Uh, we have an education system that's not preparing people for the jobs that do exist today. And so you have, you know, many, many families struggling to get by. I mean, honestly, I think that's what played itself out in this most recent election, unfortunately, is there's a whole group of folks who are being left behind by the new economy and globalization. So I think that's playing out in many cities. I think San Francisco and Silicon Valley and the Bay Area happens to be an extreme, probably only paralleled by New York in terms of the level of affluence and the number of millionaires and billionaires. And again, we looked at just two counties. We found 76,000 millionaires and billionaires in these two counties alone. Wow. So the extremes are more pronounced here, um, is my hypothesis, than they would be in other cities. So let's talk about some of those millionaires and billionaires that you, you, you talked to as part of yeah. your research, right? You interviewed more than 100, sounds like 100 folks that are of high net worth in the Valley, and as well as nonprofit directors. What are some of the assumptions on both sides that are being made? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we actually found, you know, the giving code, the title of our report actually refers to this kind of implicit um, approach to philanthropy that these newly wealthy follow. And not surprisingly, many of these new donors coming online, many of these 76,000 millionaires and billionaires, you know, who were created through Google and Facebook and other IPOs, um, they really approach philanthropy like business. They've often only lived in the world of business. They've grown up in the world of business. They tend to disproportionately be white and male <laughs> and yeah. highly educated. And their whole experience is the world of business. And so when they turn and look at nonprofits, they don't understand why nonprofits don't always act like business. You know, they think sometimes naively that homelessness can be solved with an app or a technology silver bullet. And we know that's not true. Right. So there are a set of assumptions um, around how they approach their giving. Um, they're very innovative. They're very disruptive. They're interested in impact and scale. Um, and that's all great. Like, we actually think those can be really positive qualities. But the downside is they've got blinders on and they don't know what they don't know. So they yeah. sometimes miss the bigger picture. On the other side, if you talk to nonprofits, um, you know, there's a whole different set of assumptions. It's almost like the two groups are speaking very different languages and have different frameworks and mental models for how they see the world. And folks in the nonprofit sector are trying to meet basic needs and just keep the lights on and struggling to survive and <laughs> yeah. make payroll, yeah, right? Yeah, right? And um, and it, these two groups increasingly don't know how to communicate to each other. Well, I enjoyed going to the release of The Giving Code and just listening to some of the folks that were in the room, right? The foundations, the nonprofits, and those individual donors and, and folks that do want to make a difference, want to invest uh, in organizations that work. One of my takeaways from that was that there's this need and desire to have really strong, thorough data outcomes, measurements from some of these nonprofits that simply do not have the capacity right. to be gathering and analyzing and reporting out. So I guess my question to you is, are you seeing that there's some movement on both sides of the table? Like, how can we work together, actually, to make sure you as a donor are getting the information you need and we're not breaking the nonprofit and trying to attain that information, right? Right. Well, it's interesting. Yes, they are very, very focused on data and metrics. And in fact, the whole effect of um, altruism movement has influenced the thinking of many of these donors as mm -hmm. well, which is sort of the, how do I get the biggest bang for my buck in terms of my philanthropy, right? So again, they approach it with a business mindset. What's my return on investment? Right. Not from a charitable mindset or an ethical or moral mindset, like how do I help the least well off? They're like, how do I have the biggest impact I can have? Uh, unfortunately, that leads some of them to invest abroad. It also, because we've suffered for many decades in the nonprofit sector from what we call the overhead myth, and it's being challenged, right? Mm -hmm. But this crazy belief that nonprofits are going to abuse your money, and you, God forbid you spend it on hiring top talent or spend it on computers, that's all counted as overhead. Or a marketing campaign. Or a marketing <laughs> campaign. Yeah. Or all the things, frankly, that these donors would spend in their businesses to make a successful business. Yeah. Um, there is a hesitancy to give... Um, general support funding to nonprofits to fund things that require that are required to run a successful nonprofit. And so what we believe is that these donors need to understand if they want metrics and they want data, then they have to understand they're going to have to pay for that. They're going to have to help these nonprofits build the reporting systems and hire the staff and frankly have the technical infrastructure that is required to do the kind of reporting that these donors want. So again, it's a process, I think, of education on both sides. I don't think either party has bad assumptions. I think they're both operating from positive assumptions, but they, they keep missing each other. And speaking with a, a major donor recently, um, 
you know, we were we were talking about sort of our financial uh, picture here at ALF and philanthropy in general. And he goes, you know, I'm not going to be here forever, <laughs> right? And yeah. he's someone that is extremely philanthropic and, and gives yeah. throughout the valley. And he says, who's coming up next? Who's coming yeah. up next behind me? And I want to, I think it's a great question, and I want to sort of pitch it to you. What is the profile of the donor coming up next? And, you know, how do we ensure that, you know, the nonprofit that is actually doing great work but may not have the sexiest title or uh, mission is is supported, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the good news side of the story is that we found that philanthropy in Silicon Valley is increasing exponentially. So the, the, the headline there, the good news headline is philanthropy is growing. And we've seen it pretty much double across the board in the last decade. So individual donations from Silicon Valley donors have gone up 150%. Is it local, though? Alone. Or- However, <laughs> and that's yeah. the catch. However, when we really dug in, and again, all these statistics and tables and charts are in the full report, um, we found that about 90% of that philanthropy is actually leaving the region. And this goes back to this point about bang for the buck, and many of these donors are frankly, they're young, they're global, they're millennials. They've lived elsewhere. They're not from here originally. They relocated here for jobs. Their companies are global and have a global footprint. Think of Apple, think of Google, think of Facebook, right? And so they tend to look at, well, what can I do in Africa? Or what can I do on global issues like climate change? That's all well and good. We're not saying don't give globally, but we're saying it's a little disproportionate right now. 90% is leaving the region. Of the 10%, and that's across many different sources of charitable giving, of about the 10% that stays locally, most of that's going to major universities and institutions. So what's being missed here is the role that community-based organizations, local nonprofits working in our own backyard on local issues, providing services, um, working with constituents who are really struggling to survive in this economy and in this region, um, those are the nonprofits that are being left behind. And so what we're saying is we're making a plea to say it's a both and. You can give globally. You can give nationally. You can work on lots of different issues. But don't forget what's happening in your own backyard because, frankly, it's a result of the economy that's creating all this wealth and growth is also creating this displacement. So we think there's something of a moral obligation to look at what's happening right here in our own backyards and give back. Well, I think it's there's a real perception problem, right? And I've been on a couple of national boards and had to speak at conferences, et cetera. And I, I was joking with somebody yesterday. I said, I always get put on the fundraising panel. <laughs> and it makes me laugh because I get up there. It's like, well, you're in Silicon Valley, you know, right. the community media centers I've run, et cetera. You've got to be so well funded. And, you know, I have to paint a very different picture for them. And so I think part of this is maybe even in our own backyard, in our own Silicon Valley bubble, there's a perception problem, right? That yeah. nonprofits must be well funded and have plenty of resources. Right. Yeah. yeah, there's a huge perception problem. And it's interesting you mentioned that because, again, Alexa and I also do some national work with other clients. And, you know, I'll talk to nonprofits on the East Coast in D.C. and, you know, New York. I mean, New York's got a lot of money, too, so they're not having as much of a problem raising funding there. But there is this belief that if I can just open an office in Silicon Valley, the money wow. is falling off the trees out there, right? And so, like, I see all these nonprofits and social entrepreneurs trying to figure out how do we get into the valley? How do we tap into these folks? And it's crazy because if you're a local nonprofit here, you have exactly the same questions. The money is not falling off trees. These local nonprofits don't know how to access it. They don't move in the same networks. And by the way, not a lot of it is going to local organizations. And so, again, I do think that one of the most surprising things about our findings in this report was just uncovering how big this perception gap is and how big this disconnect is and getting real data behind that that didn't exist before. 
Janeway Skillern, who I know you're familiar with, she is a um, faculty here at ALF now, and um, you know she talks about the the fact that you know in her research, some of the most successful nonprofits and social impact movements um, are actually hard to find because they they are organizations that don't have the big charismatic leader necessarily, or don't have the flashy fundraiser. Uh, or the big marketing campaign. They aren't focused mm-hmm. on brand building. And, you know, I've talked about this before. I was so moved as she was describing, you know, you know, look at uh, it, when you analyze the different players and partners uh, within a, you know, an issue area that we're trying to affect instead of putting the nonprofit in the center of that, it's really on the outside. The issue, the mission is in the center. Mm-hmm. And so those nonprofits that she has studied, you know, they were tough to find because they aren't big flashy waving their flags, right? Unfortunately, you know, we live in a world, right, where you have to you have to play the game because that's the right. system that we live within, whether it's the competitive RFP process, uh, local government or um, federal government, et cetera, uh, or you know, trying to get the attention of those new donors, right? How do you do that without being big and flashy? And how do we, can we change that system? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'm a big fan of Jane's work. And actually, a lot of her findings resonate with some of the work we've done as well, looking at networks and even some of my research in Forces for Good that goes back a decade now, that some of the organizations that have scaled and had the most impact did not necessarily invest a lot in marketing and brand building. Um, I think what's interesting, so I think there's some truth to that. And at the same time, you can't be completely invisible either. Um, To scale social impact, you do have to think outside your organizational boundaries, and you do need to think about how you build networks and how you change systems. And in fact, I would argue that's one of the most compelling solutions that we need to look at here in Silicon Valley is how do we take all of these small nonprofits that are operating on less than a million dollars in budget, frankly, almost 80% of nonprofits in these two counties, And we have a plethora of social service agencies and education organizations that are tiny and are not getting the resources that they need to invest in scaling their impact. So how do we actually get them to work together and to coordinate and build these larger networks and maybe do shared marketing campaigns, right? Maybe do marketing around the issue, not the organization. So I think there's lots of creative solutions that we can look at and drawing on Jane's thinking and other research on how you build these kind of collective impact networks, I think could be very helpful and certainly points a way towards a potential solution. So the nonprofit field structure is inherently a power structure, right? Mm-hmm. And it's where nonprofits and therefore our constituents are really at the mercy of those who hold the power, who have the money, right? So question i mean nonprofit leaders and philanthropists do not move in the same circles don't really know each other um nonprofits lack the capacity and don't have the freedom really to operate on an equal level as philanthropists so in your research i mean when you talk to these donors are they open to a shift are they open to having those conversations and and approaching social impact uh, in a different way I think both sides are open to a shift, honestly, when you actually get out and talk to them. I think these donors are willing and interested in being educated and learning more more about social change. Currently, there's no structured way to do that. There's a few. Um, there are a few resources like SV2, which is a venture philanthropy giving circle model in Silicon Valley. And I know some of its members are also ALF fellows and so on. Hmm. Um, that's one example of how donors can team up and actually learn about giving. 
Um, and for nonprofits, there are some opportunities to build capacity, but I would argue that the solutions we have now are not at the scale of the problem of the disconnect. So most donors are looking around and they don't know where to turn. They don't know how to get educated. It seems overwhelming. They look out at the nonprofit landscape and there's several thousand nonprofits and many of them are teeny tiny, right? And they don't necessarily have the marketing budgets. And so you, again, they're, they're looking at it and saying, well, I can't give my million dollar grant to this organization that only has a budget of half a million, how are they going to absorb that? Or they don't seem to have the leadership or they don't seem to speak the same language or have the metrics. And so it creates all this, I think, um, in some ways it scares donors off, right? It's a different so language, this, It's right? a different language, but, yeah. but this, this fragmentation in the social sector as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we need to look at how we begin educating folks on both sides. And for nonprofits, the message is one of tough love, which is if you want to attract this money, you're going to need to learn to collaborate and team up. You can't do everything by yourself. It's not efficient. We're going to have to build networks. We're going to have to coordinate our work more effectively. We're going to have to think about how we grow the pie for everybody, not just get our own slice of the pie. Right. And for these, non you know, and how we how we actually begin thinking about impact and measurement. Some nonprofits do. There are some nonprofits we highlight in the report that have made that shift. And not surprisingly, they're the ones who are highly adaptive and have strong leadership and get that they're living in a new fundraising environment and that they're going to just have to invest in making these changes. You know, I've been so inspired just in my almost a year now here uh, watching how relationships across sectors and across perspectives uh, can just abs absolutely break down the walls. I was talking to a colleague of mine and, and said, well, how did, you know, how did ALF change you? And it's, he said it changed the way I vote. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty profound, right? <laughs> what kind of circles can we create where we can scale that up? Right? Absolutely. You know, again, I think in the Giving Code, we really looked at the marketplace of philanthropy and the social sector, the supply of philanthropy and the demand for philanthropy and nonprofits. But at the end of the day, I think these disconnects that we uncovered really point to a need for more institutions and for groups like ALF to play an even bigger role because what's needed is not just nonprofit and philanthropy, philanthropy solutions, but also government solutions and private sector solutions, right? What is the role of these big corporations in giving back? You know, Facebook just announced they're giving 20 million to build low-income housing in East Palo Alto and East Menlo Park. That's great, that's not gonna meet the need, but it's a start. But so what is the role of these corporations in helping solve local problems in their own backyard, right? And what is the role of government, especially when you have all this kind of fragmentation at the government level in Silicon Valley, it's much easier in some ways if you're in San Jose or San Francisco to come up with policies that can have a direct impact on the issues in your city. But when you've got lots of tiny towns and municipalities and unincorporated areas trying yeah. to figure out how do we deal with housing? This is a regional issue. So the bottom line is these, at the end of the day, philanthropy and nonprofits have their role to play in the system, but so do governments and so do private sector leaders and, and economic markets. And so that's why I think ALF is so powerful because it actually brings people together across these sectors and helps create shared understanding of the issues in our community and actually gets them collaborating and working together to find new and creative solutions. I mean, at the end of the day, again, I, you know, I think philanthropy has a role to play and nonprofits do too, but at the end of the day, solving some of these complicated problems are really gonna take folks working across sector boundaries and the only way to do that is to build the trust and build yep. the relationship. So I think this whole report is basically a call for ALF to increase its influence and its scope and its impact. We need more ALFs. We need more SV2s. We need more opportunities for people to find each other outside of their filter bubbles and working across all kinds of boundaries, right? Yep. Boundaries of race and class as well as boundaries of sector.
I would say that Measure A and that passing, too, is a great example of government stepping up, but also if you look at all the players that were involved in that campaign and what has led us to the point of being able to pass that, and that's one yeah, of the biggest... Yeah, no, I think it's amazing. And I think, yeah. you know, and again, you know, this last election cycle uh, may have been fairly traumatic for a number of us and for a number of folks working in nonprofits and philanthropy, and yet uh, I also believe it's a wake-up call as to what's happening in the federal government is really broken, right? The polarization, the level of um, antagonism across partisan lines, uh, it's not productive, it's not constructive, and it's not innovative, right? It feels very stuck. And so a lot of the conversations I'm hearing these days are talking about this new federalism and the role of cities and states and regions in Mm -hmm. coming up with creative policy solutions. So I do think that the shift um, is going to focus back on the local level for looking for these solutions. And I think Measure A is a great example of that. We need more opportunities. You know, if you look locally at what's happening in the Bay Area and then what's happening in California, um, we're coming up with all kinds of creative innovations, right? Indeed. Yep. Yep. Now it's time to lead. Lead locally again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So is there a part two to the Giving Code? So part two, it's interesting. Um, Part two is very much focused on helping figure out what it will take to enact some of these solutions. So Packard has agreed to give us some additional funding and really look at taking the findings from the Giving Code around what the problems are and some of the emerging solutions that came up in our conversations and figuring out what would it take to implement these solutions. Does that need to be a consortium of local funders coming together, local foundations who care about local? Does it need to be a network approach? We don't know the answer yet. We have some leading hypotheses, so we're going to go out and be testing those this spring and talking to more folks and figuring out, you know, what is the role of ALF and how do we actually increase ALF's impact? What is the role of SV2? How do we increase their impact, right? So finding these solutions and bright spots and lifting them up and figuring out how we scale what works and then how we create new opportunities to come together where those gaps are currently. So that's sort of phase two. We're also doing a little bit of a deeper dive funded by the Gates Foundation on some of the research side um, but that's more that's got more of a national focus on sort of this question about these new donors and their mindsets and what it will take to unleash more effective giving among this new group. So it's we've got several kind of pieces of follow on work that are coming out of it. I think that'll be fascinating to look at compared to where Silicon Valley is at and what our trends are. And absolutely. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Heather. We look forward to partnering with you and and uh, let's see what we can do this year. Great. Thank you so much. And likewise. ALF is passionately committed to building diverse networks of leaders focused on personal and community transformation in order to create an inclusive and thriving Silicon Valley. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please visit us online at alfsv.org.